morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you listen to the podcast. The podcast is available on several platforms, including Apple, Google, Spotify, and Amazon. I'm Sherry Dutter, an occupational therapist and dysgraphia expert. Welcome to The Writing Glitch, Hacking Dysgraphia, No Pencil Required. In this episode, Jennifer Choi and I are talking about parent advocacy. Jen is a parent advocate out of New York City. Her business, Special Support Services, offers affordable advocacy systems, navigation, and peer support for New York City families of students with disabilities. Hello, Jen. Welcome to the episode. I must ask you, how are you, really? I am doing great. Thank you so much. It's a new year. It's a new time. And I love the weather right now. It's fantastic. She is a winner girl. No, thank you. I'll take the fall any day. Why do I ask really at the end of that question? Do you have any idea? I actually answered that question honestly a lot. And today I'm actually feeling really good. But sometimes when people say, how are you? I actually tell them the truth. I'm like, I'm doing terrible today. I don't know if that's how you ask, but um, I'm glad you asked that. I think it's great. Thank you. That's exactly why. Because it gives you that moment to pause and really think about how it is that you're really doing. I'm doing absolutely fabulous. It has been an amazing start to 2023. Thank you. Are we ready to share what makes a difference with the Writing Glitch community? Absolutely. Thanks for having me here. Hey, you're welcome. Before we do, we need to introduce our sponsor. Today's podcast was brought to you by Dadderer Educational Consulting. At Dadderer Educational Consulting, we hack dysgraphia from the inside out. Our mission is to help teachers, therapists, and parents raise the next generation of leaders by hacking barriers to writing success, dysgraphia. We offer two five-day challenges to help you build the skills you need to manage dysgraphia and how writing struggles interfere with math. That is called dyscalculia. We show you how to apply that knowledge to the classroom and help the next generation of leaders maximize their future all without raising the scepter, a pencil. You can find out more at my website, sherrydotterer.com. Click on either the writing or the math challenge button in the menu bar to find out more about writing and math. Jen, are you ready? Let's do this. Tell us about special support services. We all have something in common. A lot of our children, all of our children actually have disabilities. All of our children have IEPs. And we all met in this, we all live in New York City. And we met because we were in a listserv together for parents of students who are gifted and have disabilities. Being gifted with disabilities creates a unique set of circumstances. And it's very hard to get services that are appropriate for your child within the public school district. We exchanged a lot of notes, a lot of support with each other. And we realized that maybe we should work together. I had actually hired one of the my partners to be my advocate at my child's IEP meeting. And I just realized that she just was so amazing. She knew so much. And what she was able to provide to parents was something that 
I felt like every parent should be able to have. I asked her to train me and she trained me and another friend. And the three of us created this business together where we're all peer advocates. All of us are helping other peers. And what we do is we teach parents about the process and we help them understand what their children's evaluations are and help them apply that knowledge in the IEP process. I love it. I love it. Thanks. You mentioned gifted students with learning disabilities. Several years ago, my son had an IEP evaluation and didn't qualify. And as I was looking at his scores, he had an achievement score in math that was in the gifted range. Everything else was average. And then we had a couple scores that were on the low side, but not low enough to be considered a disability. We had this gamut of scores that left him still in that middle range, but yet he still struggled and they wouldn't support him. And even though I had training, I could not convince the school to help support that score that was one point above that range that would be a disability, which is an 86 on this on a standard score. I could not get them to help him in that area. What they did agree to is giving him a little bit of independence with the area that he was excelling in, which happened to be math. But because the other areas were in the average range, it didn't help. It only caused more trouble than it was helpful. And it just got me so frustrated. Then I get referrals as an occupational therapist for kids who were twice exceptional. I'm like, what is this connection? But that's part of how this whole journey began is how is a gifted student having trouble with writing? I think part of the issue is that there is bias. There's prejudice against gifted students with disabilities in the sense where there is this notion that smart kids can't have a disability. If, you ha- if you're smart, you can't have an IEP. But if you look at all of these famous people out there, Steven Spielberg won a Golden Globe this year, and he's won several awards actually, and he has dyslexia. There's a lot of people with disabilities out there that are just exceptional, and we don't think about them when we're at the IEP meeting And we're looking at a student whose intelligence is very high. And yet, if you compare their achievement, their reading, writing, and math levels with their intelligence, you're saying, this doesn't really match up. And then many times, especially in elementary schools, people are looking at students and thinking, this child should be making grade level progress. And they are. A lot of gifted students do make grade level progress without exerting much effort. However, When they come to a problem where they have to exert effort, they have to use strategies, they don't know how to use those strategies because it's part of their disabilities, not adopting certain strategies. And then when it comes to having to apply them. So an example would be a child with a superior memory who has memorized a bunch of words, but doesn't know how to sound them out. Eventually that will catch up with them. Or a student who doesn't really know how to pay attention, but is very bright and could discern things and speak off the cuff. They're really good at explaining things, but then ask them to write something down 
and ask them to write an essay and you won't see that giftedness on that paper. And it's hard to assess that. And people forget that the purpose of the IEP is to support the student's need for further education, future employment, and independent living. It is not about being on grade level. There's plenty of students with an IEP that are not on grade level and they never will be. And that doesn't mean they're not getting appropriate special education either. My measurement for these students is about making appropriate progress based on their unique strengths. If they're highly gifted and they're, they have a disability, then you should be expecting them to perform better than grade level sometimes. But this is a shock to many people in the public school system because how dare we even think these things? But the truth is we need to, if we don't recognize children for who they are and what their needs are, for gifted children who aren't making appropriate progress, I think the things that we're going to see are depression, anxiety, drug abuse, truancy, suicide, all that kind of stuff. And it needs to be dealt with so that they can make appropriate progress and be healthy. Oh, everything that you said, yes. One of the things that I talk about with John Lee, my co-author for the Math Disconnected book, is that kids just know stuff when they're in those younger grades. And if you look at the definition of a specific learning disability, there is a point at which the student's capacity hits a max out level. And when we are hitting that max out level in that areas that they used to just know, and now they have to apply this idea of how to problem solve work, they don't know how to do it because they've not developed the coping skills of not being able to adjust and work th- work through it and problem solve it in that way. Because let's face it, that average is where the public school understands. You need a special teacher to help push that kid if they are gifted. My daughter was very fortunate. She went to a school here in Pennsylvania that was specifically designed for gifted students. And she said to me after her first semester of college, Mom, I was the only one who had an idea how to study. They're all brilliant, but I was the only one who has ever taught how to study. And I want to say thank you for sending me to that gifted school. Yes, it's wonderful when a truly gifted program is going to recognize that not all gifted students are high performing and they have to create a program in which the students are able to make appropriate progress based on their strengths. And so the standards have to be high because that's their that's the student's capability. At the same time, if they're being recognized for their unique needs and disabilities, then they're going to get the support that they need, the specially designed instruction that they need. And that's one of the reasons why I see a lot of students in gifted programs, especially here in New York City, and they're given paraprofessionals instead of special education instructional service. And that's a real shame because most likely the paraprofessionals aren't being provided with the support, the instructional guidance in order to help that student achieve more independent skills based on their unique needs and strengths. And so, Wait a minute, I'm back at, I, like I'm pondering this in my head. You're saying that many of the gifted students in New York City are having a paraprofessional to help support their learning disability part 
because there's no program out there available to help bridge that gap between their disability and their brilliance? It's not like it's not available. It's, you know, I'm not even sure exactly what is behind the decision making, but there is a gifted and talented that's what it's called right now, gifted and talented program in New York City, where the students are chosen to be in that program because of whatever they've exhibited in their earlier years. The students will be in these programs and they will be provided with accelerated work curriculum. And again, students who are gifted, they will perform until they can't anymore. Like something compensatory method that was using, they were at some point, whether it's second grade or 12th grade, it runs out. And they should be provided with special educational instructional services once it's been found out that they're really, they're compensating and they actually don't have that skill. Who would be best to teach a skill that they haven't developed yet? Would it be a paraprofessional or would it be a special education teacher, especially if the student doesn't have that skill because of a disability? And what happens is if you're in the gifted and talented program, within a New York City public school, because the funding model to provide, let's say, integrated co-teaching service or resource room, that funding model to provide that to a student is, it's very hard on a school to do that. But because there aren't as many students in that particular classroom that might need an integrated co-teaching service teacher, and getting that in that kind of class is more expensive to the school, And on top of that, you may have that bias that exists in many schools, which is smart kids don't need an IEP. They shouldn't have one. It doesn't make sense. If they need an IEP, they shouldn't be in that program. Or if they're in that program, then they wouldn't need an IEP. It doesn't occur to them. They might think, oh, you just have a behavior problem. Let me give you a para. It's not that you can't write. It's that you won't. Let me get you a para instead of You can't write because of X, Y developmental delay, and I need to get you therapeutic services. I need to get you any sort of related service, any sort of special education instructional service to help you develop those skills so that you can then demonstrate them independently someday. This is a problem. Absolutely. There is a definite disconnect with what the general education world understands about these gifted students. You mentioned the words integrated co-teaching teacher, I think is what you called it. Is that the same or have you ever heard of an instructional coach that maybe what we need, and this is just like a throwing it out there a question, is an instructional coach to coach these paraprofessionals about gifted students so that we can help these paras fill in the gaps. And maybe it's not necessarily that we need to have a whole slew of integrated co-teachers, but we need highly educated paras and they need to, and maybe an instructional coach might be a way of bridging the cost gap, but we're also going to need to pay that kind of a para higher than the average para. Does that make sense? And in, in, Various states, things would differ in terms of the situation, in terms of what kind of services are provided, what's the lingo for these services. We do, we definitely have instructional coaches in New York City, let's say, but the most important thing is that 
whatever the service is, it has to be on the IEP. Instructional coaches are floating around the school, but that's not necessarily something that's going to be on a student's IEP because when a docu- when there is a disability, it's documented, it's noted that it's causing an adverse reaction or adverse implication on the student's performance, then we're looking at what are the goals? What do we want to see ourselves doing in a year for this child? Where do we want to see him? And let's make up a service plan for this student so that he gets to meet those goals. And then by the end of the year, if we haven't met those goals, then we have to rethink what is going to be the recipe for this child. Whatever it is that you're going to provide the child, it it may be in certain states there is a term or there is some sort of training method for a very highly trained paraprofessional. Whatever it is, what's most important is that it's documented, it's mandated, and it's tracked. And if that doesn't happen, then there's less hope for that student. I'm just thinking the model that I am teaching is how to be an instructional coach for functional activity. But that kind of that, that's where I am. I'm trying to help bridge that gap between what an academic instructional coach is and what a functional instructional coach is. And that's where I was going with that is having I think a, that makes a, a lot of sense. What you're looking for is in the IEP, there's going to be an area where there's a list of accommodations. And the accommodations are good ideas, but they have to be more than just good ideas. An accommodation in an IEP is something that has to be provided to the student. Let's say you have instructional coaches, whatever their background may be, they might be a special education teacher, they might be an occupational therapist, or they might be a social worker. Whoever has the training and has the know-how presents it to the IEP team saying, this is what we've discovered that the student needs. Then they put those accommodations into the IEP. When you're creating an IEP and where you're documenting the disability, you're documenting what needs to be done, and then you're mandating what needs to be done, and then you're tracking it over a year's time. What's great about that is when you have someone who's coaching and who's providing that information, you put all of those directions into the IEP. For example, this child must use graph paper when the student is doing a math problem. It's a common thing. But what's also common is that in the classroom, graph paper doesn't come out for some reason. They forget after a month or two. And if you have that, then the parent or the occupational therapist who's assisting that student is able to go back to the team and say, we forgot that there is an accommodation here for graph paper. And that means that you have to provide the graph paper to the student every single time. The student is only in third grade and is not comfortable with asking for graph paper. We must provide that to him at every turn. And then maybe in fourth grade, maybe they will be comfortable because they've realized I'm really good with graph paper. Or there might be an additional accommodation saying, I will write out the first problem on graph paper for the student, and then the student will then take off after that, because that's what we've noticed about the student. But what so that whole IEP scenario is we just need to make sure that we know what the student needs, that it's marked clearly, so that even if the student was picked up from one school, had to move to another town in the same state, the school's IEP team knows exactly what to do because all the directions are written there in the IEP. 
so that he can continue making progress without interruption. I like that you picked on graph paper because I want to talk about graph paper for just a moment. Sure, of course. Why, why can't that accommodation help the entire classroom is my question. And that's part of some of the things that John Lee and I talk about all the time is what's good for one student is going to help that one that is falling through the cracks. One of the things that they did for my son when he was in first, second, third-ish grade, maybe all, even all three, is they actually were giving them graph paper as the whole class got it, not just that one student. The whole class got it and were taught how to use graph paper to create place value before and after the decimal and what it looked like with multiplication, et cetera, et cetera. And by the time then they moved on to middle school, yes, it was taken away. But while they were learning it, everyone in the classroom got the accommodation and it camouflaged that one student that needed it. Did that make any sense? Unfortunately, with the individual educational program, it's not a universal design learning statement for the entire class. I understand that, but there are some accommodations like graph paper that can be disseminated as this is the way we're going to do it in my classroom. Absolutely. And as I get the individualized piece, there are some things Graph paper there being are more one than of them. Some things. There are so many things that actually. could be universally used in the classroom and not single that student out. And that gets that's where my soapbox gets. I think <laughs> if you want to continue singing on that soapbox, the first place we're going to look at are like the grandstand of education. Where do the kids go eventually? They go to college. And if you look at many colleges, they're actually providing these accommodations to everyone. What do they? They let anybody use a computer in the classroom versus in K through 12, you need permission. Why? They let everybody use, there are schools that provide text-to-speech technology for anybody who needs it. So because there is an actual cost to these things, they provide those things to students who needs it and it's not a big deal. Grammarly is not that expensive. If you think about getting accommodations in college versus getting accommodations in public school, it's the public school, that whole process is just so much more complex. And not to say that it's the same thing. It's not. In colleges, they wouldn't give you instructional services as a part of something that you have a right to. But even if you think about the amount of universally designed you know, in terms of accommodations that is just available to everyone, that's a real big hint for us in K to 12 to say, it's so much, why do we have to even bother? It, that actually reduce the number of 504 plans, could reduce the number of, potentially reduce the number of IEPs. Because if we can see that there are some things that people need, for example, multi-sensory, multimodal, explicit reading and writing instruction. If we gave that to everyone, there would be a lot less IEPs in the world. Because a lot of the students that need that have an IEP and need to have an IEP to get that. But if we were able to provide that to everyone, I think we could actually even save money potentially. But that's the hard part. It's that parents have always had more success with advocating only for their child rather than advocating for the entire class. But having said that, there are times when students 
parents of students with disabilities have teamed together with other parents of students with disabilities in the same school. And I have seen changes made because of that. But unfortunately, we don't see a lot of that as much as we'd like. And you know what would be even better, that next step is parents of students with disabilities teaming with parents of students without disabilities to say, this isn't just an, an accommodation. This is just best practice. Why wouldn't I want best practice for my child without a disability? And, and one of the things that people were so happy about during the pandemic was that there was Google Classroom for everyone to students who couldn't write down what the homework assignment was on the bulletin board or the chalkboard. They didn't have to because it was on Google Classroom. And then uh, there, what a massive relief that was for that student to not have to do that. And then now we're all back to school and there are actually teachers who stopped using Google Classroom and now the IAPs have to come back up and put that as an accommodation for the student so they can continue to participate. You made me think of about something that happened to me back, oh gosh, maybe 2019 to... 2020, like early 2020 in the school year, not after March. And maybe it even happened before that. But anyway, what happened was I was trying to do do some dissemination on how to create whole classroom environments and create collaboration. I went to the PTO of my school district and asked them about talking to everyone about accommodations and writing struggles because I wanted to try and find those kids that were falling through the cracks. They came back to me and said, we only have, we don't have anybody that's on the PTO that has a special need. No. I was like, okay, you just said about how that would, that bridging the gap. Yeah. I'm glad I'm not the only one who thinks that way. You're getting me on my, you're getting me on my soapbox. I'm sorry. (laughs) No, it's great. It's great because we need passion and we need to, and I hope that lots of people are listening because we need everybody to step up and share and go ahead and be the voice for your community. I, whenever my, my children start a new school, the first thing I do, if there isn't one already, and there often isn't, is I'll start a community for the parents in my school of students with disabilities. And it's not so that we can sit there and get together and complain about the school. It's really, the first thing is we exchange notes. We will t- we tell each other who's like the person who can cut hair that that's okay with students with autism or the dentist. Those are the kind of notes we exchange. But then we'll also exchange notes like this teacher likes to do it this way and we found that it's worked, so give it a chance. Or no. You should go back and say these things and it'll help your child get what they need. Those are the things that we'll exchange notes about. I don't, maybe a principal might feel a little overwhelmed at first when a parent group is approaching them. But in the cases that I've I've seen, I feel like some principals will really welcome that because they might want to make a change, but they might have had them with somebody else in the school, if the parents are voicing, we've all discussed this amongst ourselves and we really would like X. And the the principal might say, I like X too, but the assistant principal's never been on it. So I haven't bothered. But now if you came in and five parents, not even all of them, but even just like 10 or five parents from the school said, I really like this. I think that this is needed. We'd even help you pitch in and pay for it. A lot of principals would welcome that, I think. 
This is where the writing glitch community should excel. And the parents in the community need to partner with one another, follow one another in the community and create events. Jen, I'm putting you in charge. (laughs) Create events for the other parents that we can share information like that. Because there's, it's such a, the globe is a large place. And I know there's a lot of global effect that's going on, but there's also a lot of people that may live close to you that you don't even know. That is why I created the Writing Glitch community in addition to the podcast, because I really firmly believe that we need to get together in smaller groups and larger groups so that we can share and disseminate information. Thank you, Jen, for being a part of that. And I just gave you a job to do, sorry. But it's only an extension of what you're already doing. Anyway. I do love creating communities. I actually created a Facebook group within New York City for parents of teens with disabilities because we have so many challenges ahead for these students who are facing career or college right after graduation, some of the parents' biggest fears are, what is my child going to do after they graduate? They almost don't want their kid to graduate because what are they going to do? And transition is an area that needs a lot of attention. But yeah. And of course, writing does too. Writing is huge. Dysgraphia is a huge problem that I see in my clients all the time. Yeah. Share the community. All right. Our podcast is released on the second and fourth Tuesday of each month during the school year. Join the Writing Glitch community today, and that is at thewritingglitch.com. Remember, you were put here for such a time as this. Post-podcast production is managed by Sam C. Productions.